Welcome again. My name is Paul, and uh, we are excited to have all of you with us. If you're at our Apple Valley campus, thanks so much for being there. Here in Victorville, we got our Feeling campus, a Sperry campus. Today we have a guest speaker named Rick Langer. Rick is a professor at Biola University. He's been a pastor for 20 years down in the Redlands area. He is uh, an expert in so many ways. He's been published in the areas of bioethics, theology, philosophy. But what I love about him and his heart is he's just got a heart for people who are working through their faith. They're deconstructing their faith. They're walking away from their faith. You're not sure what to do with your faith. And he just has a heart to uh, help people in that way, and especially believers. How do you speak into that narrative that is so strong? So at all our campuses, would you just put your hands together as we welcome Rick to the stage. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, High Desert Church. It's wonderful to be here. I've, I've heard about your church uh, for a long time. I was uh, on the board at Forest Home with Jack Hamilton, um, and I don't even know how many years ago that now becomes, but I just realized when we were coming up here, I've never actually been to your campus. So absolutely wonderful. Appreciate the welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that, that really is very near and dear to my heart. And that is this issue of, of people who are wandering from the faith and being the kind of people who can help go after them to be the people who seek the sheep who are beginning to wander or perhaps even have lost their faith. Uh, and unfortunately, although perhaps predictably, uh, I had a very recent experience that really brought all this to the head. And it was someone that I knew well uh, and had had a lot of contact with. And uh, she had gone through a season and I got one of these phone calls that said, hey, we need to talk. And there was something about the phone call that made me feel just a little bit queasy that this wasn't just a nice little update about how everything was going. So we got together and she began to basically describe how she had lost her faith. And uh, we was, you know, unpacking the implications of that. And it was interesting as I listened to her story to hear what she said. And the first thing that became clear is that this was a process this wasn't like someone stumbling and falling off a cliff, but it was a cascade of events over a long period of time that culminated in this crisis of faith. And the interesting thing about it is it began with a discomfort about how Christians were living, not how they were believing. In other words, it was a problem more with love than with truth. The individuals that she saw were not simply disagreeing with other people, but they were disdaining other people. You know, there's always cranky people, right? I mean, most of you have probably been cranky yourself. So a cranky person is really not that big a deal. But she looked at this and thought, well, yeah, these people could be exceptions. But the bottom line is that she looked at Christianity at large she felt like that these people seemed to actually be reflecting what the church practiced and emphasized. And they weren't exceptions. They were the rule or the ever-increasing rule. And saying that, well, you should think about Christ, not about Christians, didn't really work. Why do I know that? Because I tried that. 
And she made the comment that says, you know, Rick, I get that. I understand the idea. But the bottom line is it seems on average, the world is doing better at loving their neighbor than the Christian churches. In other words, on balance, the impact of the church hasn't been positive for making people more loving, but actually been negative to the extent that the church seems to have had an impact at all. Wow. And it was clear as we were talking, I, I thought I might be having to pull out some apologetic kind of issues. But winning her back to the faith was not going to be an intellectual activity. Her faith had fallen prey to the apparent inability of the Christian faith to produce loving people. The very thing they advertise and claim to be able to do. And in fact, the very thing that Jesus said the world should judge the church by, because he says, all by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And this woman was just saying, I'm sorry, but on the church's own criteria, it seems to me the church has struck out. This was a crisis of love and no amount of truth could make up for it. The bottom line was she saw Christians failing to love non-Christians. She saw Christians failing to love Christians. And she saw the church failing to care if its members were loving or not. Wow. Now that gave me pause for thought. I've been thinking about that a lot since we had that encounter. This was now several months ago. And it got me thinking about what the New Testament has to say to people who fall away from the church. Not just those who doubt, but those who wander and those who wander and ultimately depart. And it's actually a topic that the Bible talks about more than you think. How do we actually go about trying to restore people um, who've lost their faith? And so what I wanna do in the moments I have with you is first talk a little bit about kind of Restoring, restoring the faith back then in the New Testament times and then thinking a little about, about restoring people's faith now in the contemporary moment in which we're all living. But I wanna begin with, with the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you could turn with me to, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter two. Um, I'm going to focus mainly verse 22 on through the end of the chapter through 26. But there's a couple of things I wanna highlight in this passage before we get to that. Um, let me just say it, it feels a little like there's a crisis moment here that kind of some new and different things are happening. And so we tend to think this must be something that hasn't happened before. And as you read through the New Testament, you quickly realize people wandering from the faith is as old as this faith itself. Um, people have done it sometimes because of temptation leading them to false conduct. Sometimes it's because of deception that leads people to false belief. Sometimes it's because of just plain rebellion, um, heresy. Sometimes people are preaching that sort of a heresy. And sometimes it's just a process of doubt and wandering. 
But as you look through the New Testament epistles, it's very common to find Paul giving cautions, giving exhortation, giving words of encouragement for people themselves to guard their faith. Every time you hear an exhortation to guard your faith, what's dangling in the background of that is an anxiety about people wandering from the faith, right? When Paul tells you to hold fast to the faith, that's exactly because some people are not. And 2 Timothy chapter two is a great passage about this. And let me just, like I say, I'll focus at the end, but let me pick up a few things that happened earlier in this book. In, in chapter one, he talks about guarding the gospel, guard it to that day, the guard to the day it's been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound teaching by faith and love, by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Isn't it interesting how clear Paul is worried, clearly he's worried about us guarding something that's valuable. You ever go to the airport and leave your bag? I know they tell you not to, but sometimes like we get up and go to the trash, but usually if I'm in the airport, my computer's in there, a camera might be, there's like thousands of bucks lying there in that bag. And if I wander away, most of my attention is back on guarding the deposit that's been entrusted to me because it is so valuable. And Paul's giving that kind of a concern, that kind of a reminder here, be careful, guard that deposit. As he goes on into chapter two, he says, remember Jesus Christ, verse eight, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And he says, because of that, right now I'm bound and in chains. But he says, the word of God isn't bound and therefore everything, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that I may obtain salvation. So he says, I'm going through a process of testing and endurance, and I'm planning on enduring everything that comes my way. And then, as he goes on through chapter two, he talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerved from the truth, two guys who've departed from the truth in verse 18 there, 17 and 18. Um, and they're saying that the resurrection's always ha already happened, false belief being communicated, and they're upsetting the faith of some. So you can see in this chapter, in this book, Paul is kind of preoccupied with this issue of on the one hand, either protecting the faith, keeping people from wandering, or on the other hand, bringing people back who already have wandered. So let's turn our attention just a little bit more closely to what he has to say. So picking this up in verse 22, let me just read verse 23. Let me just read this whole section to the end then. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you can see Paul's exhortation there about people who may be departing and the concern he has for restoring them perhaps to the truth. So let me just unpack what he says a little bit phrase by phrase, beginning in verse 23, where Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, knowing that they just breed quarrels. Uh, this is a good caution today. I want you to think of all the things that people get worked up about on the internet I mean, it takes my breath away. We're fighting over everything from wedding cakes to pizza.
pizza parlors to COVID vaccines to masks. And I mean, it is mortal combat. And you'd think the way we're, we're throwing out expletives and raging on the internet, that there must be really huge things at stake here. And usually by the time you're digging down there, you're going, you know, that might be kind of a big deal, but I don't think the world is going to end because of that. Could we dial it back a little bit? Where's the volume control on our aggravation, anger, and anxiety? And Paul's first message on this is just to remind us that, guys, every difference you have isn't a hill upon which you need to die. Be careful about getting sucked into controversies that aren't that important. They may be important things, but how important are you actually making them? I want you to think about, I, I'm not sure what your background of doing evangelism is, but I was with Campus Crusade for a while. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing kind of just random evangelism with people. But one of the things we often did was this thing, it actually came from uh, Oh, James Kennedy's church evangelism explosion or whatever their, the name was. But they, they said, just ask the person the question, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And then the second question, if you were to die tonight and, and St. Peter, whoever you happen to believe in, would be to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? That's a good barometer for what a really important question is, right? And let me predict that the right answer to that question is not saying, well, I want you to know I died on the hill of not wearing masks while we were in COVID. Oh, in that case, come on into heaven. Problem solved. I, and, and I don't want to be mean and I don't want to say those things are unimportant or true, but I'm saying, could we put them in the right context? I have a friend who's losing her faith. I don't care that much if you've lost your mask. Right? And so Paul's first concern is that we're starting to fight over things that we shouldn't be fighting over. Now, I've been spending a lot of my time doing something called the Winsome Conviction Project at Biola. I wrote with a friend of mine a book called Winsome Conviction. And I feel like I've been living in Romans 14, and I just want to take a moment to clarify this about the things we fight over. Uh, we think that there's matters that are pure taste and that's all that really matters and then there's matters of conviction. And if it's a matter of conviction, it's an absolute thing. Everyone should agree and we should fight to the death over it. And it's really interesting when you read Paul in Romans chapter 14, he has this whole, the whole chapter is about days and diets. What are you eating and what are you doing on certain days? Some days, some people think all days you're alike. Some people think certain days are special, Sabbath days or festival days or things like that. Some people won't eat anything but vegetables. They won't eat meat because they're afraid it might be sacrificed to idols. Other people do. And here's the crazy thing that Paul says. He doesn't say who cares. And he also doesn't say everyone should agree. He says, I want each to be fully convinced in their own mind. That's what I want. And he says, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And he says, give room to the weaker brother who may have a different set of convictions. And you know what Paul does is he opens up in that chapter a category between mere matters of taste and absolute convictions that you might call personal convictions. And these are things you say, you know, I believe this before Jesus. And in order to follow him, I will do that practice. So you do that. But the interesting thing in Romans 14 is he doesn't mean, therefore, that you have to go tell them to do that. 
And you may think this is just trivial matters. I just want you to think for a second how trivial the issue of days and diets were when you read through the Gospels. Did Jesus ever get in trouble over the days and diet thing? Have you ever seen a page in the Gospels when he wasn't getting in trouble over either what he was eating or what day he was doing something on? And in a church that was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles like the Roman church was, I would bet that there was a lot of controversy over days and diets and a lot of people had convictions that were enormously important to them. And Paul says, those are good convictions because those are ways you will honor Christ. And you may think all days are alike and you may think somewhere special. It says, bless both of you. But you do not have to convert each other to that place. Other things, yes. As we've already talked about, there's a whole pile of things that are absolute, absolute convictions. They're the things that define the faith. Our problem is that we get those things confused and we end up having these quarrels, controversies that breed quarrels that are senseless. And throughout this passage, Paul is encouraging us not to fall prey to that. Okay, second point. If you were to be looking at, uh, in, well, so let me just read uh, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. When you have someone who's departing from the faith, we worry an awful lot about what we're supposed to say of them. We think a lot about the content, so to speak. What truth do I convey that somehow will make the difference all that? What's really interesting in this passage is that Paul does care about that. He talks in this context about being able to teach that people might come back to the truth. But his preoccupation in this passage is actually with character, with the fruit of the Spirit. Did you notice that? Do not be quarrelsome, but be kind, be patient, and be gentle. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it seems like Paul, in the context of controversies, is way more concerned about how we talk than exactly the content of what we share. It's not that the content is unimportant, but he says, if you're saying that content in a way that violates the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you're probably violating the very content you're trying to communicate. And this is exactly, the reason I feel this so deeply is this is exactly what my friend was saying. He says, I look at people and they don't seem like they're being kind and they don't seem like they're being gentle and they don't seem like they're being patient. They're exactly failing to do the things that Paul is commanding them to do. And when it's pointed out to them, they don't really seem to care. They just post again the same way. It just is like it doesn't matter. And it's clear here that for Paul, it matters. It really matters. It's more important that you bear the fruit than share the answers. It'd be really nice if we did both, right? But Paul is really concerned about the practice of the fruit of the Spirit in the context of these kinds of quarrels, controversies, and things that lead to departure. Here's another interesting thing. In, uh, as, you, as you go on through here, it says uh, in verse 25, correcting opponents with gentleness, 
that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is a really good reminder here that the goal of this whole process is not to win a debate, but to win the person. The goal is that this person be restored. I don't know if you've ever lost a debate. <laughs> I've been in a few debates. I've had these sorts of controversies. I'll just tell you, when you lose the debate, it usually isn't a thing that warms your heart to go appeal to or be reunited with the other person. It tends to be an alienating experience, not a restoring experience. If you're all wound up with winning the debate, you're probably not going to be wooing the person. You're going to be trying to beat the person. In the literal, not physically beat, but intellectually beat the person. And you know what? Paul's worry here is that they be restored, that God may restore this person. That's the goal that we're shooting for. And I love the way this is put. This brings us to the next passage, that we might be restored and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And notice when we're talking about the controversies Paul's thinking about here, these are obviously the big things. He's describing a person say they have departed from the faith They've been captured by the devil to do his will. How do we do it? Those are the people we must need to get angry with, right? Wrong. He says, these are the people we need to be kind, we need to be gentle, we need to be patient, and we need to remember that the goal is to win them and restore them, not so much to win a debate over them. Now, it's interesting here as well to, make, to see this notion that God may lead them to repentance. I love that about this passage because one of the things that happens when we have friends or family or loved ones who depart from the faith, we feel this incredible burden to win them back. Now that's a good desire, but it would be a terrible thing if you thought you were actually the one that God had appointed in the cosmos to be in charge of causing people to repent. I just wanna let you know that's actually his job, right? that God may lead them to repentance. And it's really important in these settings that we have a really keen idea of what our job is and what God's job is. A lot of times we feel like we have to win the debate. And you know what it's like? Let me just remind you. You are called to be a witness, not an attorney. So if you ever go to a courtroom and you're, you've seen a crime or something and you're called to testify to it, what do you do? Well, you just show up and you say what you saw, right? It's not complicated. You know, the perfect example is, is the blind man in Matthew or in John chapter nine. They, they, you know, he, Jesus heals him. He healed him on the wrong day, right? Controversy begins to rage. How could this possibly happen? And they bring him in and he said, you know, what do you know about this guy? And the guy's like, look, all I know is that I used to be blind and now I see, okay? End of testimony. Now I get to walk off the stage. The attorney, another name for an attorney, is an advocate. And who's the advocate? Oh, Jesus is our advocate, right? The advocate is a guy who has to make the closing argument, right? The advocate is a guy who has to seal the deal. So 
I want you to have a little bit of a sense of freedom to say, let me do my best. Let me say what I have seen. Let me tell what God has done. And then let me trust God to make the case. Because I'm not called to be an attorney. I'm called to be a witness. And that's all I'm really called to do. So that's the picture we get from, from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, what I'd like to do now is kind of just do a little application of that in the context that we have today. Let, before I move on from this, let me just point out that whole thing with God being kind of the key player, that's really important in light of that, that we see part of our job then is not just talking to the person, but literally just praying for the person that we be people who bring them before God's mercy seat in prayer, that we intercede for them because we trust that God will really be ultimately the person who might bring them around. Okay, restoring the faith now. What about the world in which we live today? What are the challenges we face? What are the things we might do? Uh, let me begin by just talking a bit about identifying what we're actually talking about with someone. I call this uh, achieving disagreement. <laughs> now, that may sound like a weird thing to do, uh, but I talk to people all the time about things they disagree about. Like I mentioned, as part of this winsome conviction thing that we do. And I'm like, I, I watch two people talking to each other and I'm like, you guys are having an argument about two different things. No matter how long you argument, you'll never find an agreement because you're not talking to each other about the same thing. You have failed to achieve disagreement. And you know what's interesting? When people begin to drift from the faith, when people lose the faith, we begin to assume what they must be thinking. We go, oh, I know what happened. And we begin to hear what they say without really listening to it. And we end up talking right past them. We don't actually identify what it is that's really at stake. If you're going to talk to a person who may be wandering, and your first thought is, I don't know what to say, let me suggest that is the perfect starting place to figure out what to say. What's really on the table for this person? The person I was talking about at the outset, um, it was really clear to me as I began to listen that her problem was with people, not with truth of the gospel. And it could have easily been that people who were misbehaving led her to doubt the truth of the gospel. But in her case, what it really led her to do was to distance herself from these people. She didn't so much doubt the truth as distance herself from other believers. And you know what? That made me realize something. I better be really careful in how I talk to her not to become one more person from whom she feels the need to distance herself because that's exactly the thing that was on the table for her, is being alienated because of the behavior of other people. Christians in her mind weren't wrong as much as they were unsavory. They were people that you didn't wanna hang out with, so to speak. So that's one way you can end up talking about different things. Another thing that happened, and this has happened to me a lot, um, I remember a particular episode where uh, a woman in our church, young, vibrant woman, mother of four, uh, you know, committed to her, her four young kids, loving her husband, uh, you know, faithfully part of the church, just a great woman, was diagnosed with a particularly uh, virulent strain of leukemia. 
And within a period of about six or eight weeks, she passed away. And I was talking to her husband. I went over to their house after she died and I was talking to him in the living room and he was just sitting there. He was kind of not responding, kind of staring at the wall. And then he looked at me and he just said, why? Why? And I thought, wow. Now, my PhD is in philosophy, okay? I spend a lot of time doing apologetic stuff. And at that moment, I was really tempted to have an intellectual or philosophical discussion about the problem of evil. But I could tell that that isn't really what he was asking about. He said, why? But he was feeling, what now? What next? My wife has died. I have four young children. I have no idea what's going to happen to my life. What next? And you know what? We often ask a why question when the real question is a what now or what next. And it's really good when people are asking why to not necessarily bite on that piece of bait because for most of us, when we're having a problem of evil question, it's usually what I like to call the pastoral problem of evil, not the philosophical problem of evil. You don't really want to hear the free will de uh, defense of, uh, the offered by Augustine or other things like that for why there is evil in the world or things. Those are valuable. Those are actually true and can make a huge difference. But usually in those moments, there's something very different that's really going on. And the thing that we wanna do is make sure we're talking about what they're really feeling and what they're really concerned about. Um, the other thing that happens as you begin to do this is you begin to not just identify you know, the, 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 the real issue, you achieve the actual disagreement, but also you discover these places where you find real agreement. Uh, and, and this happened with my friend who was complaining about how Christians were behaving. I've just spent a ton of time in the past two or three years talking to pastors whose churches are eating each other alive. It's really sad. And the pain and anguish in those pastors really hurts me as I talk to them. And so as she's talking about all that, I realize, look, I don't actually have to fight almost anything she said here. I can just say, you know what? I agree. I've seen that too. Now, I think there's other ways to interpret that. We'll probably talk about that. But there's a huge area of agreement. Likewise, for this friend of mine whose, whose wife had just died, the fact that he didn't know what to do, he was having an existential crisis, not an intellectual one. He wasn't just worried about some philosophical point. He was worried about his very life, right? And at that moment, it's really easy for me to say, yeah, I completely get it. Or maybe better put, I don't even get it. I can't even imagine what you're going through. But that I can stop and look at that and say, yeah, there's a huge area of agreement with this person, not just some area of, of, of raging disagreement. I had an interesting moment on this talking to a guy who's a YouTube debater atheist person. 
So uh, my colleague, Tim Muhlhoff, and I have a podcast that we do, and Tim had done a little debate with this guy in his classroom, and then we were going to have him on the podcast. So we had him on the podcast. He's kind of a hardcore guy. And I was a little leery about how this whole operation was going to go, but we thought, hey, let's give it a shot. Sounds interesting. So I asked him at the outset, says, you know, tell me a little bit of your story. And he talked about how he'd kind of grown up in a Catholic-y Christian home and then, you know, turned away from the faith, uh, kind of just wandered, and then he kind of became an atheist later. The atheism didn't lead, it kind of followed for him. And I was asking him, well, why? What is it that disappointed you about God or what happened? And I was thinking that he was praying. He, he said that God hadn't answered his prayers. And I was wondering what it was he was praying. And he said, well, I, I think I mentioned a couple of like bigger things it might be. And he said, no, I prayed for things that were simpler than that. He said, I prayed for anyone who I could feel loved from. That was more or less it. That's all I was going for. Any kind of close human relationship, it was, it was a pretty low bar I was asking for. That was an interesting moment. And you know what? I realized I could agree with him. And I said, you know, Tom, I think that is a pretty fair expectation for a child to ask to have someone in their life who actually loved or cared for them. And it, and it really hurts me to hear that you didn't have that. And I can understand. And I think it's amazing how often we, we fail to occupy the common ground we have with other people. You know, you, you think the guy's a YouTube atheist, so he must just be this anti-Christian raging person. And I hear him talk about that, and I'm like, you know what? Totally get why that was a traumatic, faith-wise traumatic experience for you. Occupy the common ground with other people. Now, as I mentioned before, the other thing is not just what do we talk about, making sure we're talking about the right things, the things that matter. It's also important how we talk about this. And so we mentioned before the idea of kind of steering into the relationship, doing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, going, showing all of those things to that person, giving them room, um, what you might call soul hospitality, being a place where they can come and talk about the things they're feeling. Uh, another good thing to do is to pray for them. Remember, this really is a spiritual battle. Remember how Paul framed this? The idea that the, that the devil has trapped a person, that somehow there's a spiritual battle going on when people depart from the face. So that is a great thing to remember. The other thing is just to cultivate curiosity, humility, and empathy. Uh, when people are, are losing their faith, usually what happens is you kind of end up talking to him at the back end of the story. A friend of mine had a great line. He said, you know what? I feel like I've walked into the story at chapter seven or eight. Could you tell me chapters one through six? And so they told the whole story to ask people questions of curiosity. Like, could you tell me more? How did that impact you? Empathy questions. These are all questions that foster a relationship. And oftentimes when a person is losing their faith, the only thing you have left to make contact with them is with that relationship. So those are great things to practice to do that. 
Now, a quick thought on how we're doing as a church on this point, not you guys personally, but church writ large. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's this great line that Paul has. He talks about the church of the living God as being the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Wow. I was hoping to get something a little more durable than just the church <laughs> to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth of the gospel. Paul's saying that the church is the plausibility structure of the gospel. It is the thing that makes the gospel believable to people. When you see it lived out in the church, it somehow becomes plausible. So the question is when people are departing from the faith, what have we done to make unbelief plausible to people? What have we done as a church to make unbelief plausible? It'd be interesting to think of, you've probably heard this question, I've heard it uh, I feel like a thousand times, why do Christians act that way? And you can fill in the blank for what the that way is, right? There's a whole bunch of things that Christians could be doing. Here's an interesting thought. Somebody asks, why do Christians act as that way? Here's a good test. Could you give a good explanation? Would this count as an explanation? You said, oh, the reason we act that way is because we've taken upon ourselves the easy yoke of Jesus, whose burden is light and who's gentle and lowly in spirit. That's why we act that way. 98% of the time when I hear people asking why do Christians act that way, that would not explain what they're referring to. They're worried about people being angry or judgmental. They're worried about being, people being exclusive, people being whatever. And some of those things, I would argue, are things that Christians actually need to be at times, right? Unfortunately, what has come to characterize is a whole batch of things that Jesus didn't characterize himself with. He really is the guy who said, I invite my followers to take upon themselves the light yoke, the yoke of one who's gentle and lowly in spirit, and you'll find rest for your souls. I have a few friends right now who have found anything but rest in the context of their Christian life at this point because of a lot of anxiety, frustration, fear, or anger about what's going on in the world. And I think it's a really good thing to stop and say, hey, let's, as a church, take Jesus' yoke upon us and convey to others a sense of peace, of gentleness, of lowliness, and of respect for other people. Perhaps another thing that's happened is we've, we've made our second things our first thing. We've shifted our priorities. I, I was really struck by this reading a little article about uh, the guy who took over Barnes & Noble not long ago. So all the bookstore chains have been dying on the vine in the face of mighty Amazon. And this guy took over Barnes & Noble and uh, he's turned it around. Barnes & Noble is gonna be uh, opening 30 new stores this year. And you know what? Some of them are occupying real uh, retail space that Amazon had purchased and had gone under because they couldn't run a retail store well. And lo and behold, Barnes & Noble is coming back in. And they had this wonderful interview talking to the guy about how he did this. 
And he said, well, the first thing he did was he refused to take any money from publishers because publishers pump books. And so they would make people like Barnes Noble buy a whole bunch of books and sell them. They give them a bunch of money to do it. But then the bookstore found themselves, as he put it, Publishers give you promotional money in exchange for purchase commitments and prominent display. Once you take the cash, you've made a deal with the devil. Those promoted books are the first things they see when you walk in the door. They see them when you step out of the front door. They see them at the checkout counter. As a retailer, I'd love the money. They said the consequences of that are terrible bookshops. You have to buy a boatload of copies and you push it a grip aggressively. So we stopped doing it completely. We don't take a penny. And as a result, we've become dramatically better bookshops. The best books are in the window. The best books are by the front door. The best books are where you see them. The main takeaway that this guy had, uh, the guy who was writing about this person says, this guy, he's made that turnaround in no small part because he simply loves books. If you want to Sell songs, you gotta love songs. You wanna sell movies, you gotta sell movies. You wanna sell books, you gotta love books. And he was a guy who just plain loved books and loved reading. And he wanted other people to share in that love. Here's a lesson for us as churches, I'd suggest. If we want to sell Jesus, we've gotta love Jesus. Or perhaps better put, if we love Jesus, we won't have to sell them. We'll just put them on display right at the front door as everybody walks in and he'll sell himself. And we spend a lot of time talking about politics we don't like or other things like that. And it's a little bit like a bookstore who's suddenly selling coffee and bagels and all these other things as Barnes and Noble and others were doing, trying to get people in trying to accommodate, trying to make it a place that people just feel like, oh, this fits me automatically. We used to talk, and I'm not sure how much people still use this phrase, about being a seeker-friendly church. And we hope to make the gospel friendly enough, easy to use enough, that people would just kind of come in and they'd hear the gospel and say, hey, why not? And a funny thing happened. Instead, people said, hey, why bother? It's no different than anything else I'm doing. And the church needs to be a place where people just crazy worship Jesus, where people are crazy in love with Jesus, where people are crazy obedient to Jesus. And that might be unfriendly to a seeker. They might be creeped out. They might get, ah, what are those people doing? They're raising their hands. They're singing. The guy next to me is about to clap. I can't stand it when people do that. Who knows what's gonna happen? Who knows what could go on? But let me just suggest that that's putting our best books forward. Doing the things that show that we are a people who are just plain madly in love with Jesus is the best way to create a plausibility structure and make the gospel believable. And let me just close by making a couple quick comments about um, troubleshooting all of this when everything doesn't just go perfectly. Um, a James Houston is a guy who's written a lot about spiritual formation. He had this great line. He said, the movements of the soul are the slowest of all movements. People change slowly. 
And one of the things that if you wanna love a person back into the fold is let me encourage you to plan on loving them long. I think sometimes we wanna love them so intensely they come back to Jesus. Let me encourage you to think of loving them long because the movements of the soul are very, very slow. And secondly, by and large, always remember that these issues are as much about you as it is about them. Be the vision of Christ that you want to call them back to. Practice the fruit of the Spirit. Practice love. By all means, declare the truth. Um, don't worry about being different, but be the person who models the very thing that you're calling to. And hopefully by so doing, we will see people wooed back into the faith and back into a church that truly makes the truth of the gospel plausible to a watching world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the reminders of Paul that he gives us that we aren't the one on whom everything rests, but rather you're the one who calls people back to repentance. And Lord, I pray you would help us just to be people who faithfully represent you, faithfully show you forth to the watching world, much more by our conduct even than by getting all the answers right or solving everyone's problem with the faith. Lord, help us just be practitioners of that wonderful faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.